0: Hello and welcome to Liars League, where writers write, actors read, audience listens and everybody wins. Tonight is a special night. I know what you're thinking. You're thinking every Liars League is special, and you'd be right. But tonight's stories for our near and far theme come from further afield than usual. They've come from far flung places before, that is the beauty of actors read, but never before have the stories been translated just for us, which means just for you. Tonight's stories come from Lithuania, Poland, Germany, Slovenia and the Czech Republic. They come to us via the European Literature Night, in partnership with UNIC, Czech Centre, Goth Institute, Lithuanian Culture Institute, Embassy of the Republic of Lithuania, Polish Cultural Institute, and the Republic of Slovenia Embassy in London. Did I mention tonight is a special night? We'll have three tales in the first half, followed by an interval and the internationally infamous Lies League book quiz. <laughs> Then, two final tales before we bid you adieu. Now, I am not a linguist, cunning or otherwise. Those of you who are regulars know that I even struggle with Shakespearean names. So, please forgive any unintentional mangling of the author's names or publication histories. And whatever language your ringtone might be in, we'd appreciate it if you'd quickly translate it to silence. And we shall begin.
1: <coughs>
0: Our first story of the evening will be Extract from African Electronics by Jan Krosnowski, read by Avan Shaw. Jan is the author of three books of fiction Uh, these are (laughs) difficult to pronounce in English because it's got a number in front of it, I'm going to just say nine nine Lackwick Kawalauka. easy pieces nine easy pieces pieces. oh great Klapka and African Electronics in the foreword to his first collection, Stanislaw Lem wrote, the author doesn't like our times at all a few one is bound to agree with. He lives in Bournemouth. Adam's credits include EastEnders, Casualty and The Bill, seven feature films and four productions with the RSC. He's appeared at the New Vic, Soho and Royal Court theatres, in England People Very Nice at the National Theatre and as Benvolio in Romeo and Juliet at the Royal Exchange, Manchester. He also plays the Afghan terrorist villain in action thriller Born of War.
1: Alan <laughs> Extract from African Electronics by Jan Krasnowolski. Translated by Antonia Lloyd-Jones. He took the kids to the restaurant at the end of the first passenger deck. Most of the seats were already occupied, mainly by football fans on their way home from an away match. A few dozen blokes in their club colours, they all looked rather sour-faced, which showed unambiguously that the match hadn't ended favourably for them. Some of them had already opened their first cans of beer and were loudly fulminating against the sodding French... Ritka managed to get a seat in the corner, right by the window where there was also a view of the television set suspended from the ceiling. "'At least you can watch a bit of telly,' he said to the boy. "'Normally you'd be able to see the sea, the other ships and seagulls, but it's foggy today and so you can't see anything.' Then it occurred to him that the kid had probably seen a good deal of sea lately during the voyage from Africa, "'though perhaps not necessarily. "'After all, he didn't know the circumstances "'in which he had made the journey. "'As a stowaway, he might have spent the entire trip "'locked in a stuffy cabin, "'if not in a crate crammed into the cargo hold. "'Who knows? "'The road to a better life isn't always easy. "'Wait here and don't move an inch,' he said, "'as the chudder of the engines grew stronger "'and he felt them pulling away from the shore.' He went to order some food, never taking his eyes off the kid as he stood in the queue. The boy sat still in his seat in the corner, fixing his gaze on the window, as if he had noticed something interesting in the fog swaddling the ship. As the little black boy tucked into bacon and beans, without taking his eyes off the cartoon network, Ripka thought he wouldn't have any problem adapting In a few months, nobody would be able to tell him apart from the other kids born and brought up in the British Isles. The boy would blend in, melt into the the colourful crowd that filled the streets of London, start talking like a born Londoner, get to know the city and learn to live in it. And in a few years, he wouldn't remember Africa anymore, the village somewhere in the jungle or the slum where he'd lived until now. Aren't you... "'Feeling homesick?' he asked. "'My home burnt down,' said the little boy, "'sticking the last beans from the plate onto his fork. "'There's nothing left of it.' "'I'm sorry,' mumbled Ripko in confusion, "'regretting that he'd brought up a topic that was so difficult for the kid. "'I hope nobody was hurt. "'They were all burned up, all of them. "'Mummy, Daddy... My three sisters and my brother, muttered the kid, tearing his eyes from the screen on which Spongebob was jumping about the seabed. Those people stood there with machetes to make sure nobody escaped from the fire. That's how my brother was killed, because he tried to escape. Only I survived. Oh, my God, I I really am very sorry, said Ripka, shocked, regretting that he'd started questioning the kid at all. You must have been through an awful lot, son. Uh-huh. The beans were yummy. I'd like a Coke, please, said the boy, pushing the empty plate away and smiling endearingly. May I? As he stood in the queue for the till again, Ripka wondered what sort of traumatic experiences <coughs> the kid must have been through. Everybody, everybody knows what happens in some of those African countries. Tribal conflicts, massacres, dirty wars in which insane commanders make soldiers out of little nippers like him, stuff them full of drugs and then put guns and machetes in their hands, changing them into merciless killing machines. But it's one thing filtered through the flat screen of a television set, and quite another when you're standing face to face with someone who experienced it. The child clearly had the bad luck to be born in some place that was gripped by conflict, and had endured a nightmare which was sure to cast a shadow across his entire life. What good luck he'd managed to get out of there. Little Eugene deserved to live in a better world, where the kids go to school, don't see dreadful things around them, and have a real childhood, instead of running about with guns, sowing death and destruction until another stoned kid packs them full of bullets. The little boy had seen his relatives die. Ripka found, it hard to comprehend. Ripka found it hard to comprehend how he could talk about it so calmly. It must have been traumatic. Maybe the child was still in shock. Altogether, that would explain his composure and lack of emotion. For the first time in ages, he felt he was actually doing the right thing. He was helping to save this kid. Get him out of the hell and give him a new life. Little Eugene had already been through more than anyone ever should. He had seen his family die and had come close to death himself. Ripka promised himself he'd deliver the boy to London, even if the world collapsed. Not because of the money, but because it was a necessity. Ripka had been in business for a few years now, smuggling cocaine or Charlie, as the British called it, guaranteed him a regular source of pretty good income. It was all so easy that there was no moral dilemma keeping him awake at night. It was just a job like any other. One guy sits in an office for eight hours flipping through pieces of paper. Another toils away in a factory at a conveyor belt. Ripka had tried both of these, and now he was smuggling drugs because the opportunity had had arisen, and he'd got to know some people who'd given him the chance. If he didn't do it, someone else would. Only a total loser would let an opportunity like that go by. Great Britain was like a gigantic vacuum cleaner. Thousands, tens of thousands, maybe even hundreds of thousands of people, from the unemployed on benefits to the board members of a big company, snorted streaks of white powder through rolled-up banknotes every day of the week. Doped-up politicians round the country. Doped-up businessmen managed the corporations... Doped up cocks caught doped up crooks, and even the average Dave Smith liked to snort a line at a club on the weekend. It was thanks to cocaine that this country functioned at all. (laughs) (laughs) If the entire supply was suddenly cut off, the whole place would come to a standstill, like a machine that's out of fuel. The financial system would break down without warning, the economy would instantly collapse the country would be plunged into chaos and riots would break out across the streets. Great Britain would slide into the abyss. That was roughly what Ribko imagined as he salved his own conscience. He didn't even think of himself as a smuggler. He reckoned he was more like a a one-man courier firm for special deliveries. Smugglers were losers that let themselves be sent to Colombia from where they come back stuffed with condoms full of white powder risking their lives for a, a paltry few thousand which even so would never get them onto the straight or petty con men who pack their estate cars full of boxes, of boxes of bags and vodka that drive all day day and night across Europe just to fall foul of the first customs official who casts a glance at their vehicle and Dover. This commission was different from all the rest. When he heard that it involved bringing a seven-year-old boy from Marseille to London, he refused. A discreet package which can be concealed in a specially prepared hiding place under the boot is one thing, but a live person is quite another, a much greater risk. And what's more, the British services have cracked down lately on smuggling illegal immigrants, especially since there has suddenly been far too many of the legal kind Taking all this into consideration, Ripka had told his employer to look for someone else, but the gentleman evidently wasn't used to being refused. You'll bring me this kid, he had said, and then brought out a packet of money from the pocket of his expensive overcoat. Ripka knew, without counting, that it was more than he was capable of earning in six months. As much again when the job's done. "'said the black man, whom Ripka knew to be someone "'who counted in the, in the London underworld, "'one of those who had climbed high enough "'not to have to dirty their own hands anymore. "'I've got something else in here in case you can't make up your mind.' "'The black gentleman reached into his coat pocket again "'and brought out a small card, which turned out to be a photograph. "'He put it on the table in front of Ripka,' for whom one glance at the picture was enough to understand that this man had him in his grip. He could feel the blood drain from his face. You must care very much about this kid, he said, staring straight into the gangster's ice-cold eyes. He smiled weakly, though Actually, he felt like leaping at the man's throat, knocking him to the floor and squeezing the life out of him. He knew he couldn't take that liberty. More than you can imagine, he's my nephew. So you're going to do your best to make sure not a hair falls from his head. Otherwise, another little kid might have an accident.
0: Thank you, Abbott. Our second story of the evening will be Extract from Darkness and Company by Sigafaz Horowski, read by Sean Castle. Sigafaz is a poet, playwright, and essayist. He majored in Lithuanian language and literature at Vilnius University. His first book, All That, Out of Longing, was published in 1990. Other work includes several books of poetry, two books of essays, a collection of short stories, and two novels. He lives in buildings. Sean, trained at RADA. He has appeared in the West End in Michael Frayne's Look, Look, and the Royal Baccarat Scandal. For, company, for the company aboard the Queen Mary Two, he has appeared in Richard III, Great Expectations and *Confusion*. On TV, Sean has appeared in London's Burning, The Bill, Peak Practice, and Mosley.
1: Sean!
2: (laughs) Talita Kumi, Little Girl I Say to You, Arise, from Darkness and Company, by Sigitas Parulskis, translated by Romas Kinka. On the school blackboard, someone had written angel in chalk. Perhaps it had been part of a sentence. All the other words had been erased. Angel of punishment. Angel of salvation. It had been either one. He got up and very quietly, so as not to wake the men sleeping on the floor, went out into the yard. The guard was nowhere to be seen. He was probably snoozing in some spotted found. Germans were staying in the police station. Mattresses had been laid out on the floor in the small towns in the small town school for the squad to sleep on, and after all the drinking at the local restaurant, one could hardly tell most of the men from the mattresses they were lying on. Vincentas put his camera under his coat and headed in the direction of the forest. He looked at his watch. It was almost five in the morning. The sun was already coming up. The very best time of day if you wanted to catch the light, to stop the thoughts of life. As Gasparus would say, I wonder where he is now. In the ground, he thought. With his glasses and their thick lenses, he's lying in the darkness and trying with his short-sighted eyes to discern the essence of things. His grey beard is sticking up his thinning hair pressed to his forehead by a black, narrow band. He was strange and interesting, even though unwell and short-sighted. They who had come to study photography called him by his first name, Gasparus. Gasparus <coughs> the photographer. Photography at that time was quite a new thing. It was Zapas who had told Vincentas about this miracle of the light, and he while still a teenager, had read a book with the title The Amateur Photographer, as well as several articles on photography. Then, when he turned 18, he bought his first camera, a second-hand Kodak Retina. And because he wasn't getting on very well with his photography, he searched out Gasparus, Gasparus the Photographer, Without his thick-lensed glasses, he couldn't see anything. He'd take off his glasses, look straight in front of him with his strange empty eyes and say, Now I can see the world as it really is. Gasparus used to tell a story of Plato and his cave. People are like slaves who have been imprisoned in an underground cave. They're chained down. They can't move or turn around. There's a gap in the wall behind, and all they can see are the shadows on the wall facing them. When someone is walking there, above, they see the moving shadows, but they can't see the real light. People never see the real light because they don't correctly understand the source from which it emanates. It doesn't emanate from the sky, and it's not electrical lamps that emit it. It's in here. Socrates knew that, and Christ knew that, and when they talked about love, it was the light that they were speaking about. But if the world is the embodiment of the terrible thoughts of God, if we are the embodiment of thoughts about falsehood, malice, and envy, then we are damned. Our souls are damned. Gasparus would often remember Plato's allegory of the cave and say that Plato is the first theoretician of photography. Human beings are unable to discern the beauty of this world with their naked eyes. They most often see only the shadows of things and not their essence. Photography could do that, to show things as they really were. Moreover, photography is always behind a thing, or above a thing, but not the thing itself. Vincenzo walked down the country road, feeling a little dizzy and nauseous. He couldn't be sure if he was feeling that way from the alcohol he'd drunk or from what he'd seen yesterday. He remembered Gasparus and his cave, because he himself <laughs> felt as if he were in a cave. Everything that was happening around was happening as if close by, as if behind a transparent wall. He felt as if he were an invalid. The world of an invalid is similar to life in a cave, where only the shadows and reflections of the lives of the living and the able-bodied can be seen. It seemed to him that something was moving in the pit. The gravediggers, in their hurry and out of laziness, had not finished burying the people that had been shot. All they'd done was sprinkle some lime on them and thrown a few shovelfuls of earth on them. The contours of the dead body were visible in the morning sunlight. And through the earth, here and there, a shining layer of lime that had been sprinkled on looked like snow that had fallen in the middle of summer. How many of them were there? A thousand? Fifteen hundred? Yesterday he hadn't been able to photograph anything, even though he knew about it and had prepared for it. But when the volleys of shots started and the people struck down by the bullets began to fall in dead, he stood rooted to the ground, to the very end. He did press down on the shutter release button, but he did not believe he'd actually been able to photograph anything clearly. He'd been standing too far away from the pit, been afraid to come any closer because Yorkibus, the elder, had threatened him. If I see you pointing that thing at anything, I'll kill you! So he didn't try to raise the camera to his eye, but he only stood and looked. Vicentus came up to the edge of the pit, pulled out a cigarette and lit up. Now he'll have to get used to smoking, not just after sex, but also after death bottom, by his feet, lay a small girl. Her slight body was half covered with lime and earth. She was on her knees with her head down, and only from her stiff pigtails could one tell that it was a small girl. He bent down on one knee, looked around, stretched out his hand, and whispered, come me little girl, I say unto you, arise. He looked around him again. A feeling of shame and despair overtook him. All of it was so unbelievable, so horrible, and yet, at the same time, so commonplace. As if it were not a thousand people murdered yesterday, lying in the pits, but only mannequins or bit players, who would soon get up, brush off their clothes, and return to town for the next performance. With trembling hands, he pulled out his camera and tried for a long time, to find the best angle. One side of the girl was lit, but the other was in shadow. Her body was imprisoned in an underground cave while her soul was walking above. A soul? Or perhaps just a shadow? With the sun rising, the shadows are as long as when the sun is setting. This was the very best time of the day to take photographs. This was the very best time to turn time into light. He liked to photograph Eudita. She would get out of work early. The sun was going down. She would lie on the bed by the window, one side of her lit up, the other side in shadow. The pubic mound also threw her shadow, as did her breasts and nose, her arms slightly raised or under her head, the bend of the knee, the line of the thigh, It all threw a shadow, and all of it was as if just a reflection, as if it were not the real thing, only an intimation of it. Unita had once said to him, you look at me as if I were a thing. When? When you're photographing me. No, he answered, I don't look at you like that. Like what then? Like a very precious thing. Here, by the pit full of Jews that had just been killed, he felt that he had betrayed Eudita. He would never dare to confess to having got involved in such a predicament, and he would feel the guilt forever. Even though he never killed anyone. Yet he was only an observer, like that one, the other. He was hanging on his cross and observing acts of iniquity being carried out in his name. Good excuse. I would do something, but my hands are nailed to the cross with nails of shame, to a pillar of shame. Incentus felt he was going to throw up at any moment. As he was wiping his mouth with the back of his hand, something drew his attention like a flash of light on a blade. On the right, on a slope, it was the rippling water of the lake and straight in front of it stood several solitary pine trees as if they escaped from a forest or perhaps the opposite was true perhaps they were not able to return to the forest Talitokuni he muttered again under his breath to himself everyone wanted a miracle even the slightest one even the feeblest and smallest of miracles and then He really did get a fright. His camera fell out of his hands and landed at his feet with a soft thud. He began backing away, far away from the edge of the pit. There, at the bottom, someone was moving. A girl in the pit. Her hair was as white as the whitest wool or snow. Her feet were like bronze refined in a furnace. Instinctively, he he began to look for something, a stone or a stick to defend himself with the girl moved again and she moved as if not of her own volition not as if through her own efforts but as if possessed by some force emanating from somewhere else from outside, fr- from the depths his mouth began to burn as if scalded with sulphuric acid, he tried to lick his lips but his tongue was as if made of wood and would not obey him He took a few steps forward, picked his camera off the ground and came up to the edge of the pit. He climbed carefully into the pit, which wasn't very deep at the edges and at the bottom it was trampled gravel and then sand further in. Afraid to step on the body that had been buried, he carefully tapped the girl's body with his shoe. The movement stopped. She was no longer moving. If he had a gun, would he have dared to shoot someone who had already been shot to finish her off, so she wouldn't suffer any more? Perhaps she could still survive this. Perhaps he could save at least one life, and then his guilt would be less. Tenser looked around helplessly. I die, but look, I am alive forever and ever, and hold the keys of death and the world of the dead. The girl's body moved again, turned slowly on its side, and from under it appeared a hand covered in blood and lime. The world of the dead called to him, and he could not withstand the temptation. He pressed the shutter release button of his camera several times. He liked the sound, like that of a small guillotine. That's what Gasparus, the photographer, called it. Click, click, click. Listen, you hostages to darkness. That is how, in reality, a head is cut off. It dies, so it can be reborn on a roll of film. The same as before, but now different. The light cut, the light arisen. He then stretched out his hand, took firm hold of a child's palm, and pulled. The boy was no more than ten or twelve, with blood on him, but uninjured. There were several holes in his underclothes which were clearly too big for him. He had laid there all night. Perhaps he'd lost consciousness, or perhaps out of fright. The miracle, he said, as if to the boy, as if to himself. You have a chance. We all always have a chance. "'Get out of my sight! Just get out of my sight!' he said. But he could not hear his own voice. The child understood. He ran through the dewy meadow in the direction of the solitary pines. The sun was barely to be seen above the top of the pines. He ran towards it, not in a straight line, but staggering from side to side, his legs bending under him. An ugly trail was left in the grass.' The has pointed his camera and pressed the button again. Click. Look, I hold the keys of death and the kingdom of life. It was the sin of pride, but so sweet. The pear, the juice of which flows through one's fingers. The blade of death cutting through the soul.
0: Thank you, sure. Our third story, the last one before the interval, will be Extract from the Zipkogs Goddesses by Katarzyna Toschkova. Czech writer Katarzyna has won the prestigious Josef Skorecki Prize and the Magnesia Literary Prize for Literature in 2012 for her third book, The Zipkovska Goddesses. The novel became a Czech bestseller, selling more than 90,000 copies while being translated into 11 languages. It was also successfully adapted for the theatre and is now being made into a film. Sarah trained at East 15. Theatre work includes All You Ever Needed, A Hard Day's Month, 26, Mole Flanders and The Winter's Tale. Film includes Coulda, Woulda, Shoulda, feeling lucky, and more than words. Feeding includes the real King Herod. Sarah!
3: (laughs) (laughs) Extracts from the Zidkot Goddesses by Katarzyna Tuchkova Translated by Andrew Oakland A Shared Inheritance She remembered the girls coming to Sormina, mostly in the evening when the light was failing, so that even if seen they wouldn't be recognised. They came shyly, but full of hope. Sormina would take them out into the dark, guided only by the flickering flame of an oil lamp, which Dora's gaze would follow from the window until it disappeared beyond the crest of the hill. Sormina always locked Dora and Yacoubek in the cottage so that Dora wouldn't think of going after her. Apparently, this was not something she should see. Her exclusion made Dora all the more curious and she never fell asleep until after the return of Sormina and the girl. And she never learned what the two had been doing out there. All she heard was the rustle of dried herbs being tipped into a bag, then words of thanks from the girl before she hurried out into the night. Then, Solmina made the mistake of forgetting to lock the door. She was lying wrapped in a woollen shawl next to the hot stove when a tapping on the cottage door roused her from her doze. She hastened to strain the herbal decoction that had been bubbling on the stove and to put her things into a cloth bag. Still in a mild state of confusion, she hurried into the night without having secured the door. Dora, wide awake as ever, went after her. Hidden by the darkness, but guided by the flickering light, Dora followed in Sawmima's footsteps to the edge of the woods, where the spring rose into a well. Dora came close enough to see and hear what was going on she saw a girl she recognised from her rexing cough, squatting naked in a well, while over her stool poured the brew now mixed with spring water. I wash you with five fingers, with a palm as the six, so that the Chosen One will come to you to make you most precious to him, the dearest of all virgins, so that he cannot eat, cannot drink, cannot sleep, cannot smoke tobacco, cannot make merry, can come only towards this Hanichka until he reaches her and enters into marriage with her. So Mina bent down to the well and then straightened up again, making sure that Hanichka was thoroughly wet. She washed her hair and rubbed her arms and legs. So that for him, an hour is not an hour. Family is not family, a sister is not a sister, a brother is not a brother, a mother is not a mother, a father is not a father, so that nothing is dearer to him than his chosen one. With God's help, let her be placed before his eyes. Anicca began to pray. Thus I perform this enchantment. Solina continued. As she moved around the well, and over it made the sign of a large cross. When she had finished, she wrapped the girl in a canvas grass carrier that she had brought in her linen sack for this purpose. When she had dried the girl, and the girl was dressing, she asked, When will you have your monthly bleeding? In a week, said Hanichka, her voice shy and faltering. I see. On the very first day, add to the yeast three drops of your blood collected from the cloth and one hair from your pubis, and leave the dough to rise. After baking, take all the prettiest cakes and hold them for a short time in your armpit. A few minutes should be enough while they're still warm, but not while they're hot so you don't scald yourself. Put them on a plate. When young Liptark is passing, offer them to him telling him to take a few if he likes the taste of them. Not so many know that he'll share them out. He must eat them <coughs> himself, as you know. As she put on her blouse and skirt, Hanichka hung on every word Tormina was saying, and she nodded again and again. She didn't want to get this wrong. When we get home, I'll give you some John's wort and brown pine, and amaranth for you to wear so you'll smell sweet to him in particular. Henichka laughed with delight and then sang a Koppenyatza song in a low voice. How you boys do not know why you run around me so, for I'm wearing ground pine attached to this fine pinny of mine. That's right, said Sormina, nodding. The light of the paraffin lamp over the well Illuminated only the stage on which this scene was played out, together with its two actors. Dora was wrapped with wonder. Some months later, Dora again looked on incredulous as Henichka, in a wedding dress with a great crown of flowers in her hair, was led to the altar of Torichenkov by one of the Liptak boys. Was she imagining things? Or was Sormina and Honnitschka exchanging special smiles? Taming the Storm As Dora advanced slowly up the hill, she saw Yukovic waving wildly at her. His knees were pulled up to his chin and held there by the embrace of the arm that wasn't waving. Dora waved back and quickened her pace. Powered by the wind at her back. "'A storm was brewing. "'Although it was still afternoon, "'Zhidkova was cloaked in gloom. "'The first drops of rain were due any time now. (coughs) "'Hey,' he said to her by way of greeting, "'when at last she was standing in the little garden "'in front of the house. "'Jokovic motioned with his chin towards Hretzinkoff. "'Dora turned.' And saw that what he had been watching so intently was not her approach, but the endless jumble of storm clouds rolling slowly towards them, like a living mass, like an uncontrollable beast capable of destroying everything in its way in a moment. The heavy clouds twisted and poured into one another, and the beast's path was all the fields on their side of the hills of Jitkova, the Bedova, the Kopavazi. The Hudaki, the Rovna, the Jana. Dora looked to the hillside that rose above the cottage. Right in the middle of the steep slope stood a small woman, bolt upright, looking as though she would be pitched over and sent tumbling downwards at any moment. To get a better view, Dora walked up from the shed and screwed up her eyes. To her astonishment she saw with certainty that the woman was Somina, struggling to keep her balance as she braced herself against the wind. Without a second thought, Dora set off towards her. What was Somina doing, standing with her arms raised to the coming storm, waiting to be whipped by the first torrents of rain? Had she gone mad? Dora clambered up the steep hillside, tearing at the grass to quicken her progress. "'Auntie!' she yelled. But from her position on high, Swamila did not see her. All her attention was directed at Horebson and the eye of the dark element. Impelled onwards by the gusts at her back, Dora accelerated, concentrating all her energies on the task at hand. There was no doubt that a storm was on its way, When Dora was close enough to read Solmina's expression, she was shocked by the ferocity she read in it. This was new to her. Auntie, she called again. No reaction. Instead of looking in Dora's direction, Solmina raised her arms slowly, as though wishing to embrace the devastating power that would soon be upon them. At the same moment, she started to mutter. But the wind took the words from her mouth so that Dora heard nothing of what was said. Dora took a few steps more before the wind took hold of her, turned her around, then caught her by surprise by rushing at her from the front. Startled, she landed on the ground, suddenly aware of how powerless she was to prevent her body from scraping against rocks and thorns or being thrown against the trunk of one of their limes on the door of the cowshed. Again, she fixed her gaze on Sormina as her hands clawed at the grass. Sormina looked like she was dancing. Apparently, she had become so used to the wind that she was no longer struggling to keep her balance. As her arms embraced the wind, her hips swayed in wide circular motions. At the beginning of each motion, she clenched her fists as though trapping a gust. Then she made a sweeping movement. To send it back the way it had come. The grass around Swamina began to undulate in a semicircle her gesture was describing. Evidently, the wind was turning around her. Suddenly, Dora heard snippets of words carried by the reverse current. But she did not understand these words. Encrypted in a song she was hearing for the first time, they were worshipping someone she did not know. Oppose the storm, Heavenly Father, Almighty God. Oppose the storm, His beloved Son. Oppose the storm, Holy Ghost, Hagios, Othios, Ishiros. Holy, 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 Lord God of heavenly hosts. Heaven and earth are filled with thy majesty and thy glory. Staring up at Sormina in disbelief, Thoris strained to make out her aunt's words. Now with a sweeping top to bottom, left to right gesture, Sormina was making the sign of the cross. The incantation continued. Banish these turbid clouds and this violent air with all their harmful vices, their hail, their thunder and their lightning. We beseech you, God Almighty, to dispel and despoil them. The wind performed somersaults across the hillside, carrying away cups of soil and dry grass and tearing the heads from meadow flowers. Dora's eyes and mouth were full of dust. I enchant ye in the name of the day of judgment, in the name of God Almighty, conqueror of all evil, that ye turn your hell from these crops and gardens to the hills, the rocks and the water where no one sows, plants, all grafts. At this point, Dora was struck by a gust so strong that the tufts of grass came away in her hands and she was propelled twenty feet down the slope. Her vision dimmed and she cried out in terror. The wind was tossing her about like a sheaf of hay. She was quite helpless. This was surely her end. Her slide was halted by a rock pain brought tears to her eyes. Help! She yelled into the wind. Help! But Selmina did not move. And far and wide, there was no one else who could help her. Dora clung desperately to the rock, her shoulders around her ears, as she attempted to hide from the gale, from the flying grass and twigs that whipped her face, from her fear. In her helplessness, she started to pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, she gasped on the verge of tears. She went on with her prayer, even as her mouth filled with dust, even though the coughing brought on, on earth as it is in heaven. The dusty vortex passed over her head, and still the words flowed from her mouth, but first quietly, then louder, until she was shouting for all she was worth and quite beside herself. Forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And the wind swirled up one more time, lost and then gained strength, turned swiftly against itself, gave one final blast, quietened and then fell silent. In the new calm, Dora's and Stormina's voices merged as one. Deliver us from evil, for thine is the kingdom, the power and the glory, forever and ever. Amen. It was over. As if by magic the gale had vanished. Dora sat up and looked about in confusion. She saw that the clouds were in retreat, that their heaving menacing blackness was rolling towards the uninhabited woods of Kikula Hill, beyond Heretinkoff and away from Zhitkova. She was at a loss about what to make of all this. Come on, get up. So Mina was bending over her and sighing. She took Dora by the arm and helped her to her feet. Sumina's so hand was shaking. When Dora turned to look into her face, she saw that it was drawn with fatigue. Each leaning on the other, slowly they made their way down the hill. Baglarka was standing by the cowshed, waving with delight. Yacobek was racing about and yelling, You did it, Sumina, so you did it! You drove the storm away! This time, I got some help from her saw so Mina wheeze, glancing at Dora.
0: Thank you, Sarah. With the first half behind us we are now nearer to the first story of the second half than the first story of the first half but nearest of all to the 15 minute interval. <laughs> in
1: 1982
0: and studied literature at Leipzig at the Deutsches Literaturinstitut and philosophy and comparative literature at Humboldt University in Berlin. Novels include Gegend and Weber's Protocol, more recently a volume of poems published by Hansa. Sommer vor dem won the 2012 Peter Hutschold Prize Gloria's work includes audiobook narration for the RNIB and frequent collaborations with Cabinets of Curiosity she's performed her devised one woman show with Hyde and C. Theatre The Clock at the Brighton Fringe the Pleasance, Islington and the Art Scene Festival in Ghent Gloria!
4: Limited Liability by Nora Bosson. Translated by Jamie Bullock. Louisa Titian compared the house number to the address that she carried with her in her father's restless handwriting. She found his name on the buzzer, the door sprang open with a hum. It all fit together, but Louisa still didn't know how she fit in there. A uniformed police officer opened the door of the fourth-floor apartment for her, a scuffed metal door. You are? May I see your ID, miss? He looked at her. She only saw his cheeks, too much flesh. She pulled out her driver's license. Louisa tried to convince herself that there was nothing unusual about the fact that a police officer was waiting in the apartment until a doctor arrived. Nothing unusual about the fact that the doctor hadn't made it to this corner of Brooklyn yet, due to the heavy snow. Nothing unusual at all. All it meant, she was sure of it now, was that someone had died in this apartment. Around noon, the officer had told her, Kurt Tietjen had left behind the musty smell of these dingy rooms. He'd left behind the bustle of this run-down city. "'So the half hour that Louisa had lost in Manhattan's afternoon rush hour "'hadn't made any difference in the end. "'The woman who was lying on the sofa drinking a Diet Coke "'was the only person who had been there when Kurt Titian died. "'Louisa could see Fanny through the open door of the living room. "'So she had pushed her way back into Kurt's life, "'despite all her protestations. "'Of course she had,' Louisa thought." People like that could never stand to be alone for long. Fanny was wrapped in a bathrobe. It was the Sunshine Sally model. Kurt must have given it to her, since nobody but Kurt could have gotten a Sunshine Sally bathrobe in America, even though it had been made for the American market. It had been a failure for the company, one of many. Fanny lowered her chin to her chest and dabbed at her cheeks with the terrycloth sleeve. Six months ago, on Louisa's last visit, they'd briefly met in the lobby of the hotel where Louisa had stayed. She'd noticed Fanny, because the woman didn't seem to fit with the interior of the hotel. Everything about her looked cheap. Not just cheap, but second-hand. Louisa had looked at her in surprise. The way someone looks at a curiosity for a moment with undivided attention, only to forget it in the course of the day that Fanny hadn't stayed on the other side of the hall, as Louisa had expected. Instead, she'd tottered straight towards Louisa in her high heels. Louise Tejin? she asked, and Louisa gave a start, as if she'd said something indecent. Louisa looked around the lobby to see if any of the guests had heard what Fanny said, and of course all eyes were resting on this woman who stood out like a piece of tin stuck between silver coins. Louisa could have said no, she could have made her escape, but she had the feeling that Fanny knew exactly who she was, and that she wouldn't take no for an answer. She introduced herself as Fanny, just Fanny, as if her family had never gotten around to finding her last name. She called herself Kurt Teigen's Girlfriend, which sounded odd, considering that Louisa's father was almost 60. Louisa had heard her father talk about this woman. Once he'd mentioned her in a subordinate clause as this Fanny, which Louisa had misunderstood as this funny leaving her waiting for a noun that never came. Certainly a woman like that could never really belong with her father. She was one of those pitiful creatures you think they've hooked a millionaire, when actually they're the ones hanging on the hook, floundering around until they suffocate in the air. A man like her father... Louisa thought, had too much class to live with a woman like that. But the man Louisa was thinking of no longer existed. Ever since her father had retreated to New York, he looked poor, like those workers who sit at the four-micro tables by the supermarket checkout every afternoon eating cooked vegetables out of aluminum containers. His clothing lacked both colour and style. He had a five-o'clock shadow, which only made him look unkempt. He looked like an unemployed person who stalked around all afternoon. Some days he looked even more lost, like a homeless person, Louisa thought. And wasn't that exactly what he was? Someone who'd come to New York to be without a residence, without a stable life. The two women sat down in the lobby. Louisa ordered two glasses of water... "'and looked at Fanny's dry, girlish fingers, "'which were tightly grasping her two wide trousers. "'Your father's getting obsessed,' Fanny said. "'At first, I thought he was just eccentric. (laughs) but "'Now he's really out of control. "'I don't know why he hates your company so much. "'He tells me about deals I don't want to know about. "'I can't even say how much of it is true, "'and I don't want to either.' I've got nothing to do with the company. That's your business. Louisa shrugged her shoulders. You can listen to him or let it drop, she said. I'm certainly not asking you to take care of my father. But he's asking me, Fanny answered. What are you trying to say? Does he give you money? He takes care of me, that's all. He doesn't pay me. Louisa looked Fanny up and down, her mangy hair, her dry lips glistening with lip gloss. For Louisa, the problem wasn't what story Kurt told, it was the fact that he kept this woman around him at all. Louise, I don't understand this business at all, Fanny repeated, as if Louise could have been in any doubt. This much, at least, she could be sure of. And I don't want to understand it, Fanny added. I wanted to tell you that I'm not sure I can stay with your father any more. <clears throat> is that your only problem? Louisa asked. Don't you see what this is all about for your father? Fanny asked. And just what do you know about my father? Louisa replied. Don't start thinking that you can understand who we are. Louisa stood up and gestured for the check. This woman sitting in front of her with her... "'Badly bleached hair and a faded sweatshirt. "'Fruit of the loom, fifteen years old. "'A woman like that was in no position to pass judgment on her father or on Louise, "'and certainly not on the relationship between the two of them. "'Louise hadn't sought her out. "'For her, Fanny was just a nuisance, and she didn't waste time with the likes of her. "'Louise, you're here already.' "'Fanny got up from the sofa. "'Her bathrobe fell open a bit, exposing her cleavage.' She was thin, almost transparent, and her movements were shaking from too much Diet Coke. I didn't expect you today. And I didn't expect you, Louisa answered. She looked at the soft fabric, the baggy pockets, the worn seams on the arms that showed how often the bathrobe had been worn. You ought to go to your father, Fanny said. That would be good. Though I'm not sure... She paused, tapping her nails on her soda can. I don't think it's good for you to be here. Fanny glanced briefly at the floor, and then without looking up at Louisa again, she turned back to the TV, which was showing a story about a married couple on the West Coast, Barb and Erin, who had to leave their rundown house because they hadn't been able to pay their mortgage in months. Kiesbert von Biden didn't look up from his papers when Louisa entered the study. Maybe he thought that she was one of the two policemen, or maybe he didn't take her seriously since she'd come in so quietly. He looked a little sallow, like a character on a screen when the colour is out of balance. Louisa sat down across the table from him. Keysbutt looked up with a start. You're... Excuse me, but I-, I-, I didn't expect you to be here already. It's only been a few hours since Mr. and..." He seemed helpless to defend himself in light of her sudden appearance. Keesbert had been so immersed in documents for the past few months that he'd apparently stopped believing in any reality outside of them. As Louisa knew, Kurt had made Keesbert the executor of his estate, as if she couldn't decide for herself who should take care of her inheritance. But Louisa had long since decided to find her own wealth management expert. If she chose to squander her inheritance, at least it would be her own doing. So, von Weyden's presence in that narrow, dusty room where he bent over the files was all for naught. Louisa would relieve him of his duties by the end of the day. Louise, uh, I'm sorry, he's but said, but it didn't sound like he was talking about her father. He looked past her. His face was flushed. You don't have to be sorry. Louise, you know... No, uh, strictly speaking, you don't know... One of the two police officers passed by, and Keesbert broke off. Louisa would have liked to tell Keesbert to leave, but then she would have been alone with Fanny and the officers. She stood and went out into the hall, where she saw one of the officers turning his octagonal hat in his hands. Her eyes wandered up to his fat neck. His partner stood next to him, looking skinny like an overgrown Catholic schoolboy. The undertaker should have been here by now, the fat man remarked. In this, no? The schoolboy answered. Louisa stood at the door of the bedroom. He's went past her with a pile of papers. When his phone vibrated in his coat, he stopped and fumbled around for it in the pockets. Uh, I got here too late, he said. There was nobody here but that woman. He gestured towards the living room, where Fanny sat on the sofa watching a fate unfold before her on TV. She let me in. She said. She led me into the study and showed me the papers. I was the only one she told. Why didn't she call the doctor? Louisa asked. Shock? I don't know. Mr. had told her to call my number in case of emergency. The whole time I was talking to her she was just staring at the TV. I think it seemed more real to her than the dead man here in the apartment. She looked so shocked when she opened the door for the police later. "'It was like she was waiting for them to take her away.' "'He cast a glance into the bedroom, raised his eyebrows, "'and looked down at the screen of his phone. "'Maybe she hadn't even noticed that he was dying,' he's but said, "'and slid his fingers across the screen. "'Excuse me.' "'With the telephone held to his ear, he retreated into the study. "'Louisa heard him pacing back and forth. "'Light fell across the bed and the sheets. "'The sky outside the window was cloudless and bright.' It wasn't true that only Fanny had watched as Kurt neared his end. Louisa saw him move. First his head, then his whole body, which was wrapped in the cotton bed sheets, as if it had to be protected from the cold. The sun shone in gently, almost warmly, and besides, the room was heated. He turned his face towards her. It was pale and sunken, but not unfamiliar as she'd expected. The blood circulated slowly through his body. The patches of colour on his skin grew smaller until they only looked like age spots. He closed his eyes and opened them again. His lips twitched, but he didn't say anything. Louisa caught snatches of the conversation in the next room a short O, a long E, as in feed or need or deed. She saw Kurt's open eyes. His lips, his face, still warm, still living. It lay there. And then it disintegrated into what was really there, just a mask of cold skin. She ran to the bathroom to throw up. Could that have been her father? Louisa hunched over the toilet. A chemical odour masked the biting scent of her vomit. She held tightly to the plastic edge of the toilet seat and thought that it just wasn't possible. People didn't die in their early 60s. They took their time until they were 70, 80. And anyway, people in her family didn't die. The Tietjian family just resigned. But her father had already provided for what would happen after his final retirement. He had put Kiesbett in place. He had told Fanny, who would have to be informed. Kurt Tietjian didn't want to release his hold on the company, even after his death, just as the company hadn't wanted to release its hold on him, even in his self-imposed New York exile. The two police officers were loitering in the kitchen, talking about the apartment, the furniture, books and lamps, and all that remained of his life. Poor guy. Not one nice piece. And this area, gosh, I never live here. Meanwhile, Fanny opened another Coke and turned up the TV. The doctor still hadn't arrived. Maybe he wouldn't get there for another hour or two. New York had too many dead bodies. Or too few doctors but still he had to come, if only to put in writing why Kurt wasn't getting up. Only then would it be official that there was nothing left but this lifeless thing. Fanny's eyes followed bluish images that radiated from the TV. In her hand she held a scrap of terry cloth which she rubbed against her cheek. Louisa thought about that pale nothingness in the next room and Fanny was presumably thinking about it too, even if it must have felt different. For her, Fanny was crying. It seemed to Louisa that she was really crying, and she imagined Fanny beside the bed where Kurt Keaton had died a few hours before. Like all of his decisions, he had made this one without soliciting anyone's advice. For years, Louisa had simply assumed that Kurt wasn't there anymore, as physically impossible as that might sound, and that he only appeared every two or three months when she came to New York herself to jerk on him. She had assumed that Kurt's world in New York just couldn't exist without her. Louisa wasn't just afraid of losing Kurt, she was more afraid of losing him to someone else. She wanted to believe that she had been Kurt's only confidant in those years, or if not his confidant, then his messenger, or if not his messenger, then his victim. She'd met Fanny that one time in the hotel lobby, but as soon as she'd arrived home back in Germany, She'd forgotten about Fanny entirely. Now she saw this plastic-coloured woman playing with her soda can and suddenly understood that here, where she'd always imagined he was only putting in time, Kurt had actually had a life.
0: Thank you, Gloria. Before our final story of the evening, some notices. We have a kids' charity event at the Peckham Pelican on the 23rd of June with the parent and child theme. Do please come along for that. The Lions will return to the Phoenix on the 14th of July with dungeons and dragons. Submissions have closed but if you are a writer, the next open theme is Accident and Emergency. (laughs) Details of this, along with all of the year's remaining themes, and videos, and recordings, are on the Liars' website. And so, the final story of the evening will be an extract from Pig's Feet by Tajab Golov, read by David Mills. Tadev was born in Maribor in 1967 and grew up in the small northeastern Slovakian town of Lendava. After studying journalism, he worked as a contributor to various magazines, but is known in Slovenia chiefly as an alpine climber. His debut novel, Pig's Feet, won the Kresnik Award in 2010. David is an actor and playwright and was a founding member of Liars League. His stories, Worms, Feast and Red, were performed here and appeared in Arachne Press and anthologies, London Lies and Weird Lies. His play, The Blood, was produced at the Hope Theatre, Islington, in 2014, and his short play, Second Skin, was performed at Theatre 503 in February
5: 2015. David! Extract from Pig's Feet by Today Golob, translated by David Lyman Yanni is a struggling writer and comic book artist living hand to mouth with his wife and young son Simon he's just received a mysterious call from a publisher interested in his work I knocked but there was no answer I wasted a moment then tried again but nothing, so I went in, as his name was, written on the door. There was no one there, but it was obviously the secretary's office, and she had gone somewhere, I don't know where. In the next room, the bosses, there seemed to be someone in there, so I knocked. Yes, and then some mumbling and, I in. I opened the door and, there was a guy sitting there, underlining something on paper which he was holding in place with his other elbow while the hand held a banana. Hello, I said, and that I was Yanni Beer. Ah, so you're the one. He'd stripped the banana to get to its beginning, or rather end, as a banana grows from the bit we hold in our hand from the stalk or whatever it is when we peel it. Like a monkey, Simon would say. If he wanted his banana peeling so that the peel was still partly in place, so that he could eat it like the monkey he had seen in some cartoon. If he was in a bad mood, he first asked for it to be peeled completely. Then he would whine about, Like a monkey, I want it like a monkey. Once, when he did this, I stuck the banana back in its skin and sewed it in place with a needle and thread. (laughs) Kid look looked, stopped crying out of sheer surprise, and then, holes. I didn't want holes.
1: <laughs>
5: that was what he was like on a bad day, or, or more accurately, a bad moment, because he could change in a flash, but if he had gone out of bed on the wrong side, then that didn't matter, because you could count on something like that at some point during the day, if he was tired and so on. That was what I was thinking when this guy was stuffing himself with the banana, which wasn't a good thing to be doing because it was confusing, but I couldn't help it. So, you're the one, he said, stuffing the rest of the banana in his mouth. Excuse me, excuse me. He swallowed it and wiped his hands on a paper towel. Sit down, sit down now. Can I offer you anything? I said, no, thanks. But he got up anyway and yelled through the door. Maida! Maida! So that the secretary appeared from somewhere and stood there, looking awkward as if I'd sneaked in between her legs.
3: <laughs>
5: it was probably her who had called me the day before when it said unknown number and I thought, well, what shall I do? Shall I answer or play done? Because unknown numbers are never good news. People don't usually call to give you something. But then curiosity got the better of me and I answered anyway. Hello? Mr. Yenny Boonk? Yeah, I said, and wondered what the fuck this would be, and that I probably shouldn't have answered. And if they give your name and surname, it's usually a bad sign. It's usually the police, or someone you haven't paid, the nursery school, or library, or some such. But they don't use Mr., so perhaps there was nothing wrong. She could have been his mother, his secretary. I mean, the director. And she'd been there since socialist days, for sure. In these modern times, most of them would have tried to get rid of her, or move her into some department where even the devil himself wouldn't notice, into some cellar to rearrange the shelves, move folders around. Coffee? Once, in secondary school, a schoolmate and I had been on work practice at the municipal offices, and they stuck us in the cellar where the archives were. There was this guy at work there who we thought must be related to Hitler. He had the same black hair, same moustache, narrow type, and his face was white as chalk. He was also the right sort of age to be him, or perhaps his older brother, and he moved around like a ghost. He suddenly appeared behind you, indicating with his finger what you should do. That folder there, take it out to the rubbish or somewhere. Even if he did say anything, he was impossible to understand. If he was still alive, he'd be a hundred, but he's not, for sure. Would you like coffee? I waited for them to finish. The one with the big nana wasn't showing any signs of concern. He wasn't bothered that he was being looked after by some old deer and not a young one in a miniskirt. Jackets and cloud of perfume and a Brazilian wax and five foreign languages, so that everyone asked themselves, is he shagging her? Because it's cooler and funkier to have a secretary from the old days, from communism, who has a Karl Marx book. In that case, it doesn't matter. I mean, what do you care what your aunt's pussy hair's like? Of course, it was quite possible that he didn't think like that, that he saw her as a secretary, who shuffled paperwork, answered the phone, made coffee and so on, and that I was nervous, and so my thoughts were running away with me. (laughs) Coffee, he said again, and I thought it was odd, he was repeating himself, and then I got it. Ah, sorry, didn't know you meant me. who then? Well, uh, yeah, then I will. Yeah, black, if possible. Black water for me, Maida. Maida said, of course, and vanished. So, it's you, he said, and I was unclear what I was. Mida had only asked for me to call back, and that it was about some work, but she didn't know much more than that, and I had said that I could. <laughs> the author of Superfucker, and then it was clear who I was in my time I had done an assortment of things including illustrations for children's books and I thought it would be something like that not a comic strip if they call you from a serious publisher that's what you expect I had drawn Superfucker three years and three months ago I know that because then Simon was born and I didn't draw any more comic strips And even this one, I thought only my friends knew about. No one else. I think they only printed 100 copies, plus 20, let's say. However many it takes for the machine to stop. (laughs) I said I was the one, and uh, that I was amazed, because, well, I was. I was in the comic shop the other day, having a look around, and I came across it, he said. Almost died laughing. (laughs) Once more... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and I smiled too although Superfucker wasn't supposed to be funny I wanted people to be disgusted offended but these days that's kind of hard to achieve
3: <laughs>
5: communist Mida brought coffee black, sweet and I don't like sugar and coffee it's better than white coffee which makes me sick sugar destroys the taste of coffee makes it watery I don't know why people drink it like that but at least it gives you something to do with your hands, and I gratefully picked up the sweetened cup and waited for him to tell me what he wanted. Is the coffee all right? Yeah, great, I said, and was angry with myself immediately, because why did I have to say great? Yes would have been quite enough, but that's how it is when you behave as if you're not used to something. You come out with things just like that. And then he began talking, and I tried to follow him, But you're screwed if you're thinking about bananas and pussies and this and that, coffee and sugar. But anyway, something about their publishing house, setting up some kind of subsidiary or something like that, because they wanted to publish different things to what they were doing now. And I said, ah, because he'd stopped again. I used to play punk, he began, and asked if I'd ever listened to you. To you? Not to me, to punk. I said that I had although I'd been a bit late for that I'd been born after in the period of Micah and Motorhead as far as rock goes and before that bony M. but then when I was still little and they came out with Night Flight of Venus if I think about it punk was still around then but I was still a brat so I prefer brown girl in the ring and by the rivers of Babylon where we sat down and such like but I, I said yeah, yeah Bunkity and the Dead Kennedys, because these were the only names I knew. He said a bit more about punk and such things, and about his job, while I drank the coffee and watched it disappear, and wondered, then what, and at the same time tried to pay attention. Anyway, uh, I've been here quite some time, actually, and I'm a bit tired of being respectable, if I can put it like that. (laughs) And uh, that this alternative publisher, his idea, would deal with the production of odds and stops. Also comic strips, including filthy ones. Those little provocative versions that the Times now called for. Something like that. And there I was, out of coffee. I only had the glass of water left. But the problem was that coffee, you can take in small sips. You put your lips on the rim of the cup and sip, sip, sip. But water? You can't drink like that. Because coffee is in any case thicker and it clings to your teeth of course you can take sips of water but it still goes quickly one, two, three, and there it goes and uh, I'd like uh, a comic strip something like super fucker a book, a, a comic strip some bloke with a guitar, a gig and as a supplement to some uh, newspaper or so on and if anything comes with it, fine if not, then hey, okay a short pause and the water is also gone what did he want? Uh, a comic strip? He opened the drawer and pulled out a picture book and turned it towards me, and I saw it was that Slovenian classic, Martin Kapan. Then he was silent, and I was silent because I thought he'd continue, but he didn't, and I had to say, Sorry, I'm not clear. I was thinking you could illustrate Martin Kapan.
3: <coughs> I
5: don't follow it, I said. What am I supposed... I mean, how can I illustrate it when it is already illustrated? Take a look at it, read it, and illustrate it how you think it should be done. In colour. I took the book, flipped through it, and there's Japan lifting his horse out of a ditch, and another of him arriving in Vienna, which is empty and black flags everywhere, and then breaking weapons, some lances and swords and then cutting down a tree, and some brought the Empress, if I'm not mistaken, holding her hand. I knew that, anyway, everyone knows that. There's no need to use the same themes, although it might be good because they're established, well-known, uh, or perhaps not. Imagine imagine that instead of Capan, there is, uh, I don't know, uh, one of your heroes who does things his own way. But I, I don't want to suggest anything, it's up to you. I said... Uh-huh. Although I didn't know what I would draw. I mean, it was clear to me that my superhero would, what he'd do in my book, but I still didn't know if that's what he meant, what he had in mind. My super fucker would lift the mare from the ditch, but not with his hands. If You get my drift. And I didn't really know who would publish that, because I had done super fucker as a joke for friends. But, um, I said, but when I said it didn't, uh, it, it, I didn't, But, I said, but when I said it, I didn't know how to continue. And I stopped so that he would continue. But he didn't, and so I had to. But how hardcore would it be? I don't know. He doesn't know. Shall I do it like I did it in the comic strip? Fuck me, I was embarrassed to say And I was the one who wrote it, as far as I remember. I mean, like that? If you have to hold yourself back, you mean? Yeah, I said. I mean, who is this for? No, you don't have to, if you think that is the right thing to do. I thought a bit about what he'd said, because I still wasn't sure what he wanted. I don't know. You're the commissioner, I said. I don't know either we'll see. It depends on you and them out there. And he pointed out the window. I followed the line of his finger, and it wasn't particularly clear to me. There was no one special in sight, a street like any other, with a newspaper kiosk in front of which two guys were standing waiting for, I don't know, cigarettes or the newspaper. Let's say you show Kapan having intercourse with, let's say, the Empress or someone like that and he emphasised intercourse so that it was clear that he was joking. And uh, we put down in the bookshops, what do you think will happen? I don't know, I said. Leicester, Slovenians, Martin Kapan, who is, for instance, screwing, and he emphasised the verb. Let's say, a princess, or, God forbid, Her Highness, the Empress herself. I shrugged. I don't know. See, neither do I. <laughs>
1: Ah,
5: yeah. Then we fell silent for a fraction of a second. But that's not your problem. I'm the lightning conductor. If anyone, I'm the one who'll pay the price. What can happen to you? Have you been working a lot recently? Not really. I said, I've got a kid, and so on. It was clear that the bastard knew I'd had.
0: Thank you, David. And now the end is near, and so we face the final curtain. Whether you have far to go or live just round the corner, do please stay a little longer and speak to the actors, the authors, the translators, and the liars. Good night.